Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. My name's Andrew O'Neill. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Director of the Griffith Asia Institute. Thank you all for coming this evening. I'd like to start by acknowledging the presence of the following people. Chancellor of Griffith University, Lenine Ford. Uh, Vice-Chancellor and President of Griffith University, uh, Professor Ian O'Connor. Uh, Mr Shinya Machida, who is the uh, Deputy Consul General at the Japanese Consulate in Queensland. Captain Casper uh, Cooper, who's the Honorary Consul for the Netherlands here in Queensland. Uh, and I'd also like to acknowledge the presence of uh, colleagues from Yonsei University's uh, Department of Political Science and International Studies. Welcome, everyone. Well, this is uh, Griffith Asia Institute's final event for 2013. Um, it's been a great year, um, but I think really, in, in a lot of ways, we're saving uh, some of the very best till, till last. Today, we had the inaugural... Uh, Australia Career Dialogue workshop where we interacted uh, over the day with colleagues from Yonsei University. We had three panels that looked at the nature, the changing nature of the US-China relationship and its impact on the Asia-Pacific. We had a panel on North Korea looking at North Korea's changing uh, engagement with the region and indeed North Korea's future on the Korean Peninsula. And we had a panel on middle powers where we examined uh, the foreign policy roles of Australia and South Korea, um, not just in the Asia-Pacific, but in global governance forums like the G20. So it's been a really rewarding day. And the aim is to have a return event in Seoul in 2014. And we're currently in discussions with Yonsei colleagues on the theme and some of the disciplinary areas that we'll cover next year in Seoul. And Griffith is really committed to deeper engagement with Korea. And today's dialogue is very much an expression of our commitment to engaging more deeply with one of Korea's top-tier institutions, Yonsei University. Tonight's speaker is Professor Chung-In Moon. Uh, Professor Moon exemplifies the great results of combining the highest standards of academic rigour uh, with real-world policy engagement. I'll tell you a little bit about Professor Moon before I formally introduce him. Professor Chung-In Moon uh, has served as South Korea's Ambassador for International Security Affairs, attached to the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and he was also Chairman of the Presidential Committee on Northeast Asian uh, Cooperation uh, Initiative, a Cabinet-level post. Uh, Professor Moon is currently Professor of Political Science at Yonsei and Director of the wonderful Kim Dae-jung uh, Presidential Library. And I was lucky enough, and, lucky enough and privileged enough to have a tour of the Kim Dae-jung Library earlier this year and it was a remarkable experience walking through and seeing the visions of, of a remarkable uh, individual. Professor Moon also serves as Editor-in-Chief of the leading international affairs journal Global Asia, and I'm giving it a plug right here and now. Um, this is a very good uh, academic journal. It covers a whole range of issues, really, that, that's pretty central to the evolution of, of the Asia-Pacific. And, uh, uh, and Professor Moon 
is editor-in-chief of that journal. And, you know, a number of Australian scholars have published in Global Asia, so I would highly uh, recommend it. Um, I might also add that Professor Moon is uh, author of um, one of the definitive books on the Sunshine Policy. Um, it, it's called The Sunshine Policy in Defensive Engagement as a Path to Peace in Korea, which was published in 2012. And I also think it's fair to say that Professor Moon is one of the key intellectual architects of South Korea's uh, sunshine policy, uh, particularly under the Roe Moo-hyun administration. Uh, Professor Moon is a member of the ASEAN Regional Forum, eminent and expert persons group representing South Korea, and he served as a co-chair of the first and second ARF uh, meetings in June 2006 and February 2007. And this evening, uh, Professor Moon is going to be talking on the topic of dynamic change in Northeast Asia's security landscape. So please join me in welcoming Professor Moon. Andrew, thank you very much. Andrew <coughs> has been very kind to Yonsei University. You know, we, whenever we, we invited him, he never said no. Therefore, it, uh, I assume that he would always say yes to Koreas, particularly South Korea. And I hope that on the occasion of this workshop, uh, I hope that we can cultivate close ties between Griffiths and Yonsei University. To my, I, I was at Griffiths in 1991 and two, and early 2000, but at the time, Griffiths used to maintain very good contact with the Korea University, our rivalry. And so, that apparently, according to some of my, our, our Korean friends at Griffiths, apparently that link has been somewhat broken, therefore I hope the Yonsei University can fill up that broken link between Great Griffiths and South Korea. Today, you know, I'll start with you know, a very simple observation of Northeast Asia. I'm sorry I, can include, I cannot include Australia in, as in, in the part of in Northeast Asia, but, uh, but now you know, Northeast Asian countries are very distinctive. You know. Look at China. For example, Chinese announced they saying that uh, in 1949, socialism saved China. 1979, capitalism saved China. But in 1989, China saved socialism. And 2009, China saved capitalism. <laughs> to the extent Chinese, is, Chinese are extremely proud of themselves, their new positioning in world politics and economy. And Japan. Japan used to be number two in the world in 1980s, okay? And then there was a more than 20 years, you know, has, has a recession, but with the election of Pres Prime Minister Abe, now uh, Prime Minister Abe declared in the United States, Japan is back. Therefore, apparently, you know, Abenomics, okay, hold this new peace initiative by Prime Minister Abe, really bringing Japan to the core of world attention too. That's another change. South Korea. We had a hard time during the 1997 financial crisis, but we survived. And we continue to maintain you know, quite high rank in terms of economic power. And now we rank about 14 to 15. So anyhow, our economy has been so far good, and we have been maintaining very good international reputation as a good middle power, like Australia. The only exception is North Korea, but North Korea has its own impressive record too. North Korea is a rogue state, we all know it, but North Korea has been surviving. Nobody 
Imagine that North Korea would survive after the end of the Cold War, but survived. Okay? Even they made a really unprecedented world record of you know, making three generations succession of political power. It's unprecedented in contemporary or modern history. Therefore, although North Korea is repressive, North Korea has set its own record too. If you look at the Northeast Asian theater, there's a really bunch of quite interesting you know, countries. But what is really amazing is this. If you look at the, what, ha what has happened in Northeast Asia since 1979, there was no major war. There was no major military conflict. No, there were virtually no war-related deaths or injuries. That is why some smart people, particularly from Scandinavian countries, they created so-called East Asian Peace School. Now, University of Uppsala has how Uppsala University in Sweden has created a new research program called East Asia Peace Program. Their basic argument is this: What has made this unusual peace in East Asia is because of widespread economic interdependence, or according to Immanuel Kant, okay, it is called the capitalist peace. Trading states would not fight each other. Okay? Of course, there is one necessary condition, but not sufficient condition. But they are also looking into another variables. There is what we call democratic peace. You know, democracies do not fight each other. Why? Because of domestic check and balance system and because of very special norms, of universal norms shared among members of democratic countries. Of course, but China is not a democratic country. North Korea is not a democratic country. But despite that, when Japan, South Korea have become very vibrant democracies, you know, such a kinds of political changes have really lowered probability of war on the, in Northeast Asia. Therefore now, they have conducted, they have gotten huge grant of almost, what, 12 million US dollar grant from one bank in Sweden, and they have been engaging in five-year research on the topic. But recently, they are now having a problem. That now, we are talking about quality of peace. Yes, there were no wars. But if you go to now Northeast Asian countries, it's very, you find out very interesting phenomenon. The phenomenon is that during the Cold War, yes, we were fearful of war, okay? but we had a sense of security because of type bipolarity between the United States and the Soviet Union. And during the Cold War, even though harsh military confrontation, we never thought there would be any kinds of so-called uh, you know, military crashes that would undercut or jeopardize our security. But nowadays, we all argue that it is now post-Cold War era. Now there is a peace, but it's very unstable peace. Okay? We have a growing sense of insecurity in Northeast Asia. That is really paradoxical in you know, development. In post-Cold War, in which there is a globalization, economic interdependence, social, social cultural exchanges have become quite widespread and even deepened, then we should have felt that the Northeast Asian region must be much more secure. But we are feeling very high level of insecurity. Why is that? 
It's very recent changes, okay? Obvious, most important variable is Chinese rise. Chinese rise, we do not know about the Chinese intention, but the Chinese rise per se has sent somewhat very <coughs> uneasy, you know, signals to neighboring countries. Once you have a big elephant, you know, small creatures surrounding the elephant might must have felt some kinds of, you know, in, uh, feeling of, you know, insecurity. You know, that is really happening. It. Japan, Japan has been very, very passive for the past 25 years, but all of a sudden, with the election of Prime Minister Abe, and also, you know. Almost absolute majority on the part of the uh, Liberal Democratic Party and its coalition member Komeito. Okay, Japan has become much more feel confident. Okay, now Japan is pushing for the positive peace initiative. Positive peace initiative simply refers to that. According to two quotes in the Prime Minister Abe, and in his speech at the United Nations, he says very clearly, you know, unless Japan makes a contribution, positive contribution to world peace, how can we assure peace in Japan? Therefore, Japan must be, must be much more vibrant in pushing for peace. And as part of the Japan now has decided to exercise collective defense rights, meaning whenever and wherever Japanese allies in trouble, and Japan would send its self-defense forces to help allies. Okay. Of course, China is not happy. South Korea is not happy. North Korea is not happy. But this is the way Chinese government is trying to push for it. Okay. Of course, I you know, believe Prime Minister Abe should have a good intention. But neighboring countries have different feeling. They're having a feeling of insecurity, as with Chinese rising. America used to be really Pacific hegemonic leader in the region. United States has been hegemonic stabilizer in the region. But all of a sudden, America has become kind of an ordinary state. Okay? Obviously, because of budget cut, United States cannot provide the collective goods as it did in the past. If America want Japan, South Korea, even Australia to share defense burdens, okay? If America is asking, asking more burden sharing from us, yet America wants to continue to maintain its hegemonic leadership position, okay? But why the U.S. is doing that? Because of China. U.S. wanted to kind of rebalance Chinese rise, okay? And obviously United States think it is for its own national interest or an interest of its allies in the Asia Pacific. The more troublesome, at least for South Koreans, is North Korea. North Korea has undertook, undertaken three underground nuclear testings and North Korea has shown extremely provocative military behavior along the demilitarized zone. Okay. And it is more worrisome because of new leader in North Korea, Kim Jong-un, just about 30 years old. Okay. We do not know about Kim Jong-un. His grandfather Kim Il-sung was predictable. We know about him quite well. And also, we know 
about his father Kim Jong-il quite well. Therefore, we could have a sense of predictability on their behavior. But on Kim Jong-un, 30 years old, new leader in North Korea, we do not know. But the way he conducting domestic politics and external behavior, particularly vis-a-vis North Korean behavior on South Korea, is to become much more erratic than ever before. Therefore, it's worrisome. Therefore, now, what South Korea, South Korea has become like a shrimp among big whales and one bad shark. It's a quite serious problem. And President Park Geun-hye come up with a very interesting diplomatic initiative. One is called the Korean Peninsula Trust Process, meaning President Park Geun-hye wanted to really improve relationship with North Korea through trust building. At the same time, President Park Geun-hye was well aware of very difficult position of South Korea between China and the United States. That is why President Park Geun-hye proposed North East Asian Peace and Cooperation Initiative. That initiative simply refers to that while maintaining good and robust alliance relationship with China, as with the United States, South Korea would pursue equally continual diplomatic ties with China and other countries in the region, particularly in non-traditional security areas. The United States now, particularly conservatives in the United States, begin to argue that uh, it's a kind of hedging strategy, okay? Because now we're too dependent on China for our economy. Last year alone, we enjoyed a $60 billion trade surplus. We have 40,000 Korean firms which made investment in China, okay? And also, our trade volume with China is greater than combined trade volume with Japan and the United States. That we are extremely dependent on China. And it's more so because almost 60% of our export to China are in the form of parts and components. That means what? Korean firms set up their production facilities in China, import parts and components, intermediate goods from South Korea, assemble them and export to the US, Australia, and Europe. If, if our ties, with economic ties with China are damaged, then Korean economy will be in great trouble. That is why China, the South Korea has been trying to pursue what I call the double dipping strategy. Try to get the security gains from the United States while maximizing economic gains from China. But apparently the U.S. seems the U.S. does not like that kind of behavior. The U.S. wants South Korea to stick to the United States and also stick to trilateral cooperation coordination involving Washington, Tokyo, and Seoul. But because of this economic dependency, our government cannot blindly adhere to traditional alliance ties. There is a dilemma. But given all these things, we are really feeling very insecure on the future of the security landscape in Northeast Asia. Then what factors would aggregate, aggravate 
the situation in Northeast Asia, I would in the point out three factors. Number one factors is well, number one factor is revival of old geopolitical thinking. Look at why now there's a big you know debate over the air defense identification zone. Why troubles in South China Sea and South China Sea and East China Sea? It is all about the so-called sea lanes of communication issue. Is Alfred Mahan's whole, you know, ocean-based geopolitical thinking? Okay. Now there there is a one PLA People's Liberation Army Admiral whose name is Liu Huacheng. In 1985, Admiral Liu Huacheng, at the time he was a commander of PLA Navy, came up with this very interesting report. In that report, Admiral Liu Huacheng, Liu Huacheng argues that by 2000, we should secure the defense capability for the first island chains. Okay, first island chains meaning from East China Sea, South China Sea, and up to the Malacca Strait. Okay. It's very near to their coastal lines. And in year 2020, they should, the China should be able to defend Chinese vital interest in the second island chain. That is, in Kuril Island all the way to Japan, and Okinawa, and all the way South Pacific. And by year 2050, China should be able to secure naval capability to cover entire five oceans. It was a kind of utopian, utopian visions set by the Chinese PLA. But Pentagon took it literally. Pentagon came up with all kinds of so-called defense measures. And Pentagon's Asia-Pacific strategy, naval strategy, was framed around this Li Huacheng's you know, naval strategy. All of a sudden, these sea lanes of communication issue, maritime security issues, has become big issues. And as China in the become economically big power, the China must be concerned about these sea lanes of in the communication issues. And also, if you look at the Central Asia, look at how former President Bush was creating Bush Belt along the Central Asia, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and etc., as a way of encircling China. Even Prime Minister Abe, after his inauguration, he was trying to create the so-called Abe Belt, you know, starting from Vietnam, Thailand, going to you know India, and I think the not Pakistani Chinese ally, and going all the way to Turkey, and some Japanese media call it in Abe Belt. Again, Central Asia is all about the so-called land, you know, trade routes in old. You know, making the type of so-called continental, you know, geopolitical thinking. But I'm really worried about you know these kinds of things. But the more they think about geopolitical thinking, the more insecure the Northeast Asia would become. You got to remember, Hitler's Lebensbelt idea emerged from this geopolitical thinking. That is why international relations discipline has kind of disowned this geopolitical discourses. That it was really disappeared from the field. But all of a sudden it is coming back. 
And the American journalist turned, you know, the author, Robert Kaplan, he wrote the book called The Revenge of Geopolitics. In the book, he popularized the concept that for Chinese defense planners, American defense planners, Japanese, Korean defense planners, now thinking about their security policies framed around this geopolitical in the thinking. Therefore, I think it's a very worrisome aspect. Another one is so called the spat of nationalism. During the Cold War period, China never talked about nationalism. Japan never talked about nationalism. South Korea never talked about nationalism. Only North Korea was talking about nationalism because North Korea at the time was pursuing the policy of self-reliance. But during the Cold War period, nobody talked about nationalism. When the overlay of Cold War, Cold War was lifted, all of a sudden, this nationalism came out of Pandora's box. But this nationalism has a very interesting pattern. That is, it usually starts from Japan. There are some strange right-wing politicians make some remarks on the past history, which Japanese and uh, Chinese and Koreans think it is very distorted in remarks. Then that triggered, that triggers ultra-right nationalists in South Korea, South Korea and China to respond in very violent manner. In that way, they create a very interesting pattern of adversarial coalition among Japanese ultra-right politicians at the nationalist, South Korean ultra-right, ultra-nationalist and Chinese ultra-nationalist. But that really has created kinds of very negative spillover effects to other issues, territory issues, okay? Even in maritime boundary issues, okay? And other kinds of issues too. Therefore now, I would say that one of the bleakest aspect of the Northeast Asian security landscape is rise of nationalism and its impact on bilateral and tri tri multilateral relations of, among countries in the region. Okay. Look, why, for example, Japan, South Korea, and China worked very hard to create a trilateral summit and also they created trilateral, you know, cooperative, you know, commission, it, which is headquartered in Seoul. We were supposed to have a meeting in May, but we couldn't do that. China and South Korea boycotted it. Over what? Over Prime Minister's some remarks on the past history. Likewise, nationalism can derail, okay, normal cooperative ties among countries in the region. Therefore, nationalism will continue to be the primary source of tensions in Northeast Asia. Third important factor which would be a major hindrance to cooperation and integration in Northeast Asia is the domestic politics. Okay. Look at the behavior of politicians in Japan, South Korea, and China. I come to the conclusion that they are capture, captives of domestic politics. Let's take an example of President Park Geun-hye. Okay? Because of some negative remarks on past history and comfort woman issue, okay? 
President Park Geun-hye has refused to have a bilateral summit talk with Prime Minister Abe. Even when they met, when President Park met Abe Sang in the like APEC meeting, uh, not APEC meeting, the, the East Asian summit talks and whatever, she refused to have a bilateral talks because of these this historical issues. Okay. But the United States is now putting very hard pressures on President Park Geun-hye to have bilateral summit with Japan. Therefore, from just common sense point of view, strategic interest must be more important than domestic political interest. Because the reason why President Park Geun-hye is refusing to have a bilateral summit talk with Prime Minister Abe is simply because of domestic politics. Okay. That goes, let me just elaborate on that one. Because Prime Minister Abe's maternal grandfather is Kishinobsuke, very famous politician in Japan. When Kishinobsuke was a prime minister in 1960s, he helped Park Geun-hye's father, President Park Jung-hee, in economic development. In fact, Kishinobsuke played a very important role in normalizing ties between Japan and South Korea in 1960s, early part of 1960s. But ironically, Kishinobsuke was Minister of General Government Office of Manchurian State in 1930s and 40s. And uh, former President Park Jung-hee, who is the father of Park Geun-hye, was an officer of a Manchurian, Japanese Manchurian army. Then in South Korean domestic politics, it's not acceptable. Okay? But it has become kind of political liability on the part of President Park Geun-hye. Therefore, she didn't want to mention about that one. She didn't want to read any kind of newspaper report. Now, if Park Geun-hye meets Prime Minister Abe without any preconditions, which the United States American government has been pushing, that it will be kind of political suicide at, in South Korea. But because of that reason, President Park Geun-hye has been kind of compromising strategic interest, meaning what? Trilateral, Japan, South Korean, and American trilateral cooperation for the sake of her, her domestic political management. I would say that that is a good example. For example, look at China. Why China has become so sensitive on this Senkaku Island, Taoidao, you know, island issue? It's very, very simple. I didn't know about it, but when I visited China, I realized why Chinese leadership has been showing such, such, such kind of sensitive reaction. Now, go back to September 2010. Uh, then, Minister of the Transportation, Land and Transportation, Mahara Sang, ordered the arrest of the drunken Chinese captain. But that date was September 17th. That was the day of national humiliation for Chinese, because on that day, Japan invaded Manchuria. Then it became enormous domestic political issue in China. Then Communist Party leadership had to respond. 
Because there are a lot of so-called you know, bureaucrats and politicians who argue that there must be peaceful resolution of that island dispute issues and there must be some kind of joint cooperation and etc. etc. But that kind of effort just disappeared. Once cyberspace in China was pushing for the Chinese Communist Party leadership to take harsh action on Japan. Likewise, even we all know China is a communist dictatorship. Yet, Chinese Communist Party has to respond to people's desire and grievances. And nowadays, I would say that Chinese Communist Party leadership has become captive of so-called public opinion in particular cyberspace. Japan same. Japan, after having gone the 20 years of Heisei, Heisei recession, Japan needs a boost. That is why Abe-san has been making such a kind of very assertive remarks. Okay? We all know it is for Japanese domestic political purposes to enhance the morale of young generations, to give a new hope and visions to Japanese citizens. But Chinese, South Koreans, and North Koreans would take it differently. Therefore, there is a very subtle form of trade-off between domestic politics and external cooperation in Northeast Asia. The trade-off has become deepened and widened. That is why things are getting very difficult. With this observation, then what is the future? But it's very difficult. In, in the morning workshop session, you know, we talked about you know, Professor Tao and others, and we talked about what would be the option for South Korea and Australia. Australia, too. You, know, you are kind of sandwiched between the U.S. and all, you know, China, too. Okay? You have your economic ties with China is so extensive, therefore you cannot ignore China. Therefore, we're talking about you know, five options. I talked about five options, and Bill Tao you know, suggests six options. The first option is joining the U.S., for rebalancing against China. It's a safe bet. Okay? Therefore, in the case of South Korea, strengthen alliance ties with the United States. Second one, there's very small segments of South Korean population who argue for the, look, American power is a declining power. Okay? In past history, South Korea, Korea made so many mistakes when Ming, Ming Dynasty was declining and Qing Dynasty was on the rise. We chose was Ming Dynasty. Then we had a, such a humiliating you know, past experience because our king had, had to kneel down in front of you know, Hong Taiji, you know, the new emperor of Qing Dynasty, and bowed nine times. Our king, Injo, and his son, crown prince, knelt down and bowed nine times in front of the you know, Qing emperor, Hong Taiji. Okay, 1894, just before the onset of the you know, Sino-Japanese War. Again, at a time we were taking side with the declining Qing Dynasty. Okay, and then we were humiliated by Japanese. We made uh, such a kind of past mistakes that it is better for us to bandwagon with China. <laughs> That's another theory. And third one is, you cannot, look at the past history. Korea can never trust the big powers. They always victimized Korea. Best thing is standing alone. Either we have a nuclear weapons and declare the middle power with nuclear weapons, or declare permanent neutrality 
like Switzerland. If we have some nationalists who argue for it, the fourth option is a double dipping approach. Let us pursue status quo, okay? Economic gains from China, security gains from the United States. In that way, we go to the maximum. But problem is this, neither US nor China want our that kind of opportunistic behavior. I personally hope the double dipping is better, okay? But reality would not allow that kind of behavior. Then fifth option is very ideal option. As long as we maintain alliance with the United States, there's no way for us to maintain good relationship with China. Why? Alliance presupposes existence of common enemies and common threat. If there is no alliance, we should create alliance. Then alliance that, that we should create the enemies and threat. Then that enemy and threat must be China. Therefore, then we'll be, we cannot escape from this perpetual insecurity or security dilemma. The best way is in the short term, we maintain alliance with the United States. But in medium to long term, we should transform this alliance ties into some sort of multilateral security cooperation regime and collective security system. It's, I personally support this fifth option, the most ideal. But a lot of so-called experts will say, oh, that's uh, dreaming in the impossible dream. But I really would support any the candidate presidential candidate in South Korea who adopted that strategy. The final one was suggested by you know, Professor William Tao, that is, uh, pursue depth diplomacy. I don't know, it, of course, you know, he'll be giving a comments in my talks, but I hope you can further elaborate what is meant by depth diplomacy. And you know, diplomatic prudence, you know, don't decide any options in an explicit, explicit manner. Because that will involve cost and benefits. It's not the so-called the, the mini, it can it cannot be a minimax you know, strategy. Minimizing risk, maximizing you know, benefit is the most ideal solution for South Korea. Perhaps for Australia too. Then don't declare your strategy. Just continue to pursue prudent diplomacy. In that way, you can find out your niche. I think in the sense. Australia and South Korea have a lot to worry about and to make a common discourses so that we can come up with a collective wisdom to current security dilemma in Asia Pacific. Thank you very much. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.